Welcome one and all to Influence Music Podcast. We explore new music and making connections back to previous musical generations via panel debates, uh, conversations and interviews with artists, enthusiasts and media insiders. Welcome to episode six of Influence Music Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Williams. Thank you for joining us. Today we are talking about music released in the UK in the year 2000. Joining me today to have this discussion is my good friend, contributor to my blog, Lee the New Beatmaker. Lee, what's happening? Mark, thank you yet again for for having me on the show today. Listeners, thank you. I I hope you are all safe and well. The year 2000, it's something that me and Lee discussed to do a show about because it was one of those years, for some reason, we just got hit with such a bunch of great albums. I mean... It's ridiculous. I don't know a year like it where I've so many influential albums that kind of change the direction of artists or of what they had done previously or the future of the way that we listen to or produced music. Um, so we've got a list here, but before we start going through the list of albums, I think we need to kind of discuss one of the reasons or some of the reasons why we think it was such a good year. I mean, obviously, we went into the millennium. It was a big thing for us. For all you youngsters that don't remember it, it was uh, it was it was all over the news for multiple reasons. Um, a new millennium, the millennium bug, uh, moving into the future, etc., etc. And musically, though, it was very different than it is today. It was still very focused on selling albums, selling actual units of music. Um, that's what record labels made their money, and that's what artists did. To, to get the better deals. So having a body of work was more important than having a, a hit song. Um, streaming hadn't started. Um, this was before Apple Music or before Spotify or Tidal or any of those streaming services. In fact, I don't believe that iTunes was actually launched until 2001. That was even before iTunes, which means it probably before the iPod. We're, we're talking about an era of music where we were still consuming tapes, vinyls, and mainly CDs. That had a massive impact on the music that was being produced, right, Lee? Yes, absolutely. With that being said, artists were very focused on then moving those units. So we weren't really so focused on having lots of hit singles. It was having a hit single to sell your album. Um, so when you used to get an album, there was a lot of unheard music, music that hadn't been on the radio, music that hadn't been videos for. So it was a kind of an excitement to, to, to purchasing CDs and purchasing albums at that point, because we never really knew what we were going to get. You never knew what direction the, the, the project was going to go. And that suspense added to the experience. I suppose the next point of call would be would be music sharing, Lee, right? Absolutely. I mean, Mark Williams just perfectly encapsulated in my mind, music in the year 2000. For brevity, some would argue that the year 2000 was the year of Napster. I'm no expert. And again, my own reminiscences at the time and whatnot. Um, a show like this, I, I go back to my nostalgia and, oh, I remember playing this tune and this happening. But with that comes a little bit of, I, I'm not saying things which are set in stone and this date and that date. So if you want to look into the history of Napster, go check it out on Wikipedia, um, N-A-P-S-T-E-R. I would say that the Apple, the iPods and so on and so forth could have even have been a, a reaction to um, a new musical landscape where Napster was a file sharing service where the internet suddenly became, in front of a better phrase, more powerful and more accessible and people were downloading whole albums and catalogues of, of music in a way that they never had been able to before. And the music industry faced a, an existential crisis. 
record companies and artists were looking to still sell albums as, for want of a better phrase there, bread and butter in the year 2000. I would imagine record labels were going, we're selling a lot of records today, but holy shit, the goose that lays the golden egg is gone. This might be the last year, and I'd have to go back and research, but this might be the last year of the mega selling album. It's a conversation and a documentary in its own right, and we sound like old heads, but... You know, it's different to how it is now. A good reference point for that is the documentary that I always come back to is The Defiant Ones, because at the time this this happened, Jimmy Irvine probably had one of the most successful record labels in Interscope. And even though he was one of the bodies that were in the lawsuit case against Napster, he also said at that point, and he says it in the documentary, he knew that that was it. At that point, whether they won the case or not, that the landscape, like you said, would never be the same again. Yeah. And that was yeah. that he started to try and work with Apple back then in the year 2000, even though it didn't yeah. come to fruition until 10 years later. Let's get back to the music. That's what we're here for. So the list is pretty Amen. fast. So we're going to go through a, a catalogue of albums. And we're just going to talk about some of our favourite ones from the list. So the first one that I've got on the list, which is an album that really iconic, I suppose... It's up there in the top five iconic albums of the year would be Radiohead's Kid A. Um, Wow. Yeah. I would say that because it was so different to anything we'd previously um, experienced. Uh, It was an amalgamation of multiple genres. Um, Most of the time people tried to be genre specific back then. And nowadays we're we're a lot more music genre fluid. Um, But Radiohead was kind of in your feels, hip-hop meets rock. It was deep, it was dark, but it was quite inspiring at the same time. It was um, emotionally and politically motivated. Um, And it was also one of those albums which, um, for a US market, which is quite rare, it it crossed um, ethnic genres. So, yeah, it it was a massive album. What did you feel about that one? Very influenced by the Apex Twin, of course, um, who himself was influenced, I would say, by the Miami bass sound and all this type of stuff. We've talked before about artists making an effort to cross over and you can smell the crossover um, attempt, the tryhards, and then there's people who just love various different types of music and they just put it all out there and different types of people go, this resonates with us um, on, on various levels. Kid A is one of those albums. Um, people talk about it so much, I call it the what's going on syndrome. People talk about what's going on by Marvin Gaye a lot because it's so damn good. I say that about Donuts, I say that about Pimper Butterfly, and I say that about um, Radiohead's Kid A. So the next album on the list we're not going to talk too too much about because I don't think there's a person in the whole wide world that's never heard this album or a track off this album. Eminem album, the Eminem Marshall Mathers LP. Um, which I probably it was probably the album that sold the most units in the year, I would have thought. Don't you if we were on a quiz show, I would say that as my first reaction. So I can't say for sure, but yeah, I, I, if you were wrong. It was highly popular. It had, was ex- it was extremely successful. It was extremely controversial. Uh, a lot of the controversy came from the fact that we had a white rapper that was anti-establishment that had hit the mainstream and um, very much like NWA had, and we hadn't seen that yeah. before. Um, it, it had happened, but they'd pretty much stayed in the hip hop genre and not crossed over to, to kind of mainstream pop commercial success. We'll move on to the next one. 
which was Craig David's Born to Do It. Um, this was probably the biggest UK album of the year by a UK artist. It was extremely influenced from the garage scene, which kind of started at 95 until 2000. Uh, Craig David had done a lot of work with the Artful Dodger at that point. He'd also, I believe, written a couple of tracks for Damage um, that they performed. Um, oh. I, I, I love this album, um, but off air, I was talking to Liam, I was just saying that as much as I love it, and I still think it's really iconic, and I think everybody should listen to it and have it in their collection, it has got some hit singles on it, like Seven Days, like Fill Me In. I also feel like this is one of the albums on the list that has dated more than some of the others. Um, it is it is on the list because it deserves to be, but I also feel that it is kind of the music content and the production style and, and the fusion of the garage and the hip hop and what was the UK urban scene then um, has dated because it's moved forward so far and the transition has been so vast to where we are today that it does a little bit feel like it, 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 it's, it is a 20 year old album which makes me feel old. Um, next album on the list is one of mine and Lee's uh, favourites. It's Ghostface Killer's Supreme Clientele. Um, I'll let Lee wow. talk about this album because... Uh, it was special for me. Uh, all you hip hop heads out there, I know you love it, and I know why you love it. Um, just give us a little bit of your thoughts on it, Lee. Some people argue that the Supreme Clientele is the greatest solo rap album of all time. I tend to stay out of arguments about what's the greatest because I, I, I think it's it, it's so subjective. But I'm not annoyed when people say this. But from a production standpoint, salute to all the producers on this album for giving this such a Wu-Tang feel and authentic Wu-Tang soul without trying to copy RZA. Um, I, I think some of the, the stuff on there that, that is RZA, I want to say the most incredible. I mean, experimental can be a nice way of saying weird and doesn't work. But the experimental beat on Stroke of Death, I mean, how you get basically an, an, an offbeat scratched record and MCs flowing it over it in the way they do. Ghostface is an MC's MC. His flow is insane. His voice is one in a million. And the stories he paints can be terrifying, heartbreaking, all-inspiring, um, stooped in black pride, um, comical, all on the same track. I could go through every single track, the storytelling on Malcolm. There, there were points on Supreme Clientele that, that to me almost sounded like a, um, a religious text. But apart from the anti-gay marriage um, line, because um, without talking about politics, I support gay marriage, the song Mighty Healthy could arguably be the greatest rap song of all time. Ghostface goes over the Skull Snap synthetic substitution breakbeat. He peppers the track with all sorts of reassociation, references to, to, to the New Testament, um, to um, the slain um, pop icon Selena, talking about childhood adolescence and, and, and vegetarianism and all this stuff where if I talk like that, I sound super incoherent. But somehow Ghostface just seems to be reassociating all these different worldviews. If you want to be an MC, you don't have to sound like that. But listen to that record again and again and again up in the fucking mountains like some sort of novice Buddhist monk like Doctor Strange or something because that, that is that is MCing on a whole other level. Supreme Clientele is the, the sound of an MC going from strength to strength and the sound of a production team who stepped up and um, 
down to a management speak, went above and beyond. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I kind of feel like it's the pinnacle of the Wu-Tang Clan, in, in, in my opinion. I feel like... I'm not mad at that. Uh, I feel that goes. no one can make you feel like you're actually on the block with him more than Ghostface can because his storytelling is second to none. And, and for, for the younger generation, comparison would be Ghostface for hip-hop MC is like what DWE is to the Grime MC. In a sense, right. MC's MC. But like, yes. If you ask Skepta or Wiley or yeah. Kenna who their favourite MC was, yeah. they're all going to say DWE. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, the, t- the talent's just there. Great album. And moving on to the next one, which we've re- referenced in our very first episode. Um, it's Since I Left You by The Avalanches. I know wow. you're a massive fan of it. Um, we've spoke about it before, so we won't go into too much detail. But it's been it was made by a, a conglomerate of hip hop collectives um, from, from yeah. Australia. Um, beat makers that made a fabulous album. It's a must have in everybody's music collection. Uh, go out and get it in whatever format you can. Uh, moving yeah. on to that is one of my favourite albums of all time: The Angelou's Voodoo. Um, now this Oof. this is a really difficult album for anybody because Brown Sugar was so good that personally I was always worried that he would have the second album syndrome it's really really hard that when your first album's a classic and you've prepared and written and motivated yourself to get to that point for so many years that within a two year cycle you've got to produce another one when that album took maybe 20-30 years to make um, so I was always of oh what's he going to do and it's completely different like it didn't even follow the same direction and it's even just as brilliant um, and I'll let you I'll let you talk about well, it well I am mindful that I talked about Supreme Clientele for longer than I, I meant to Voodoo could be my favourite album of all time I could even even though I don't like getting into arguments about what's the greatest album when I get a bit between my teeth I won't let go so I could even maybe argue that it's the greatest album of all time um, I think that's similar to, and Mark Williams just encapsulated something that I didn't put forward about Supreme Clientele. Wu-Tang albums aside, um, Supreme Clientele was um, Ghostface Killer's sophomore album, his second album. His first album, Iron Man, is fantastic. And as Mark says, arguments are had about the, the difficult second album. I mean, they call it things like the sophomore slump and the sophomore jinx for a reason. And again, I think we can talk about this more at a later date. But Ghostface did a classic album called Iron Man. And then his second album arguably knocks Iron Man out of the park. So think about an album that you could say is 8 out of 10 and then coming out with an album that's 10 out of 10. As crude as that is, um, again, a bit like Supreme Clientele, it was a um, a it was an album that was very much D'Angelo in himself and his own genius, but also testament to um, having other people around you. Um, there were certain eras in music where it was it was death by too many producers and too many features. That's an episode for another time. But also the argument that you need a certain amount of people around you to keep you all on focus for the common cause. So think about how I said Supreme Clientele had. A, a, a bunch of producers all working for a common cause and they seem to be able to balance out one another this is also the case for voodoo where you have very slow um almost bedroom jams to to, to, to spanish jazz kind of tunes to um a dj premiere hip-hop tune that doesn't sound out of place on on what is a soul and a funk album um it's a very sad story about how um d'angelo was treated by the music industry in a very interesting I think we all know about sexism and objectivity for female artists in the music industry. 
Um, D'Angelo, I think, was one of the first men that I ever saw um, that suffered um, objectivity and, and, and so on and so forth. But, but, but voodoo is, there isn't a note, um, there isn't a sung phrase, there isn't a bass line, there isn't a kick, there isn't a snare that is out of place. Um, Jay Diller, um, Raphael Sadiq, um, Questlove, um, I want to say Bob Power mixing. Um, it was, it, you know, Prince meets a tribe called Quest meets, you know, I, I could talk about it all day and I'm not doing it justice. So listen to what Mark said. Ignore what I'm waffling about and just go put it on and enjoy. Just go put it on and I enjoy. Agree. I mean, it goes from being quite um, religious and dark and and, and uh, cultish from tracks like Devil's Pie, right through to yeah. getting you up tempo and lifted with Spanish Joint. Um, it's just it's just a great album. It's just an, a really good album. Moving on, uh, a commercial success album, which we've got to talk about, has to be Nelly's Country Grammar. Um, it, it was big. It was different. He kind of went down the route of that St. Louis rap that we hadn't heard before. Very similar to what Bone Thugs and Harmony had done in the past with that kind of rhythmic tempo. Um, it was a huge Sing song. Yeah, it was commercial, commercially viable. So that's Nelly on that. The next album is the opposite to what we were saying before. It was the best comeback album that could possibly have been ever. And this is The Locks, We Are The Streets. Right. Um, fundamentally saying that because... The Locks originally signed to Bad Boy. They were referred to Puffy through Mary J. Blige. He signed them, and I just felt he didn't really know what to do with them. And at the time, he was having all this airplay and all this commercial success on the label. He tried to get them involved in that. But when it came to making their own album, they lost a lot of their street edge. Uh, a lot of people accused them of selling out. Um, Jada Kiss didn't seem to hit so hard. Um, it just didn't really work. So they left the label and they went with Interscope slash Rough Riders. They brought out this second album uh, and, it, and I think it was a hit. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, one of my tunes of the year would have been Ride or Die Bitch, produced by Timberland, to come off that album. I felt each member of the group really came into their own and it pushed them forward for their uh, individual success as well. They really got to know the lot. Um, so yeah, it's it a good album, one to have in your list definitely check it out the next one on our list is Commons like Wolf of Chocolate Lee's been talking about this album since the last episode I know he's he's fighting at the bit to get at this go on since the last episode I've been talking about this album since the day it came out I just I'll be sat on the I'll be sat on the, the pre-COVID days I'll be sat on the train talking to random strangers about this album um, this is a album that again I'm mindful that I'm, I'm waffling and pontificating a little bit um I would say, dear listener, if if your introduction to a quintessential hip-hop album, which somehow is both quintessentially hip-hop, but is also jazz and soulful um, and can deal with playful issues as well as um, issues of black consciousness and, and so on and so forth, was Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, do yourself a big favour and go back and check out um, Like Water for Chocolate from the year 2000. Um, I would say that this is purely from a reviewing standpoint and there's no bashing here. Um, I don't think Common as an MC has ever claimed to be as lyric lyrically dexterous as Kendrick Lamar, but um, he holds his own, um, more than holds his own. And again, you've, you've got this, this era of um, ensemble pieces, albums, um, following on from um, the Ghostface Killer album, and Voodoo by D'Angelo, and Voodoo by D'Angelo's album intercedes with many of the people that are on this album or in the background, um, known known as the Soulquarians, which Mark will, I'm sure, bring up at, at a later episode. But I really think that, again, apart from some some 
you know, I'm, I'm not here to police people, but of course there's certain words and things that, that are used where maybe even Common himself wouldn't use them now. So maybe you wouldn't want to play it around the kids and, 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 and you know, so on and so forth and, and maybe not safe for work in one way. But um, it, it's, an, it's an hour of an MC exploring different facets of his own psyche, um, the black experience, um, black American music, past, present. And I would say um, future, um, seeing as, you know, 15, 16 years later, I love to pimp a butterfly and I kind of called to pimp a butterfly um, a mixture of um, Illmatic, Doggy Style, The Chronic and this album, Common Like Water for Chocolate. I'm a fan of that album as well. We've got to go into uh, a market that we don't really talk about, I suppose, in some respect. It's kind of hip hop, but it's also Latin hip hop because we're talking about Big Pun's Yeah Baby. Right. Now, uh, this album was released posthumously, so after Big Pun had died in yeah. February 2000. And I think the album was released in April. Um, it's pre-J-Lo, it's pre-Shakira, it's pre-Enrique Iglesias. It's pre-that Latin content invading the mainstream US market. Now, yeah. So I think that had a massive effect on the, the, the commercial viability and the commercial success of both Big Pun's albums. This is Big Pun's second album. But taking that aside, it was still fantastic. I mean, it's a great album. It, 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 it has those kind of fun, light-hearted tracks. Um, it has a, a Puerto Rican an- anthem in the, in 100%. It has some kind of really dark, lyrically twisted tracks like Leatherface that are hard-hitting. So good. Um, lyrical content there. Um, it's just a must-have. There's uh, also a few hip-hop beefs on there. I believe he calls out 50 Cent at one point because 50 Cent called him out. Yeah, well, I remember that. Yeah, so it's just got everything that you'd want from a, from a really strong hip-hop album. Um, and I just don't think it gets the credit it deserves. So it definitely goes on the list. It is a must-have. Um, I think, really, production-wise, it was all kind of done in-house, except for one or two tracks by Just Blaze. That it was pretty much done by members of the Terror Squad that, team. That, that sounds that sounds about right. Again, this is this is something that um, take what I say with a pinch of salt because um, rest in peace to Big Pun, of course. Um, I um, was a big fan of the first um, Big Punisher album. I'm not quite sure why I slept so much on the second one. Um, but what I will say with, with, with my little bit of a bullet point is that um, I like to draw these lines on, on, on what I'd call a hip-hop family tree. Um, Mark Williams, would it be fair to say that um, Big Punisher was the perfect combination of um, Heavy D, Cool G Rap and Fat Joe? Yeah, I was actually going to say, if if he hadn't died pre- prior uh, before this album was released... With the commercial successes it had, the radio airplay it had, I actually think he would have surpassed Big Fat Joe in the success he had in later years. And I think Fat Joe would have took a back seat and pushed him and said, "Okay, go on and do it," because um, they were that tight. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a good, it's a good album. It's a really, really good album. Um, next one on the list is uh, Dilated People's Platform. I've got to have a mention. Um, big shout out for that one. Next one is another one I'm going to talk about. Is the first Cosimoto album. Uh, unseen uh, Quasimoto is uh, an alter ego Lord Quas of Madlib um, it was the first album that he released under this auto ego it's fantastic however I would say before you listen to the album try and get a copy of the instrumental version of the album first listen to the beats get into that before you add the vocals to it because my personal opinion is the instrumental is better so listen to the instrumental version prior to listening to the one with the vocals on it um, 
because the vocals are Madlib as well, I believe. They just they just uh, digitally. He, he, he pitches he pitches his voice up to represent the fact that he's talking with an alter ego, a little bit like how you would say there's Marshall Mathers the person, then there's Eminem the rapper, and then there's Slim Shady the really you know demonic dark side of um, you know Quasimoto is is Madlib's dark side, so to speak. So some of the things he says, and also the pitched up vocals that sometimes can even be at the same time as um, regular pitched vocals can can. It's a bit Marmite. You'll either love it or you hate it. And Mark Williams, if you remember, we, you know, keep looping back to different people we've had on the show. There is a fantastic Chinatown slalom track, um, the name of which has gone out of my head. But on their album from last year, they got the low voices. And then at the same time, they got the high pitch voice. So if you went to check out the Chinatown slalom album, and I hope you did, and thank you all, shout out to Chinatown slalom. Um, they would tell you themselves, I'm sure, that directly or indirectly, they were influenced by that album, um, the Quasimoto, the Unseen, and of course, they're, 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 you know, they can correct me on, online, I apologise if that's not the case, but a hugely influential album, even though it's still, Mark, I would say, a best-kept secret yeah, to some people. It's one of those albums, it's extremely psychedelic. I remember reading an article, Madlib said that before he did the album, he took mushrooms for a month to get into the zone of making it. He, um, It's kind of got a real strong hip-hop and dub influence in it. Um, and it's yes, yeah, massively slept on. I think all those Quasimoto albums are, to be honest with you. There was one released yeah. last year, and, 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 and not a lot of people talked about it, but it was pretty solid as well. Um, moving on from that, we're going to move on to a few that we're just going to talk about really quickly. The first thing we're going to go for a hip hop collective called Jurassic Five. They released their first album that year uh, called Quality Control. I'm not going to say that this one's an absolute banger, but I do like the group, so I think it's a good reference point to go back to where they started. Um, Big L's Big Picture was also released in the year 2000. So rest in peace, Big L. We've mentioned Big L before on previous shows. Um, next on the list is De La Salle's Art of Official Intelligence, which is my favourite De La Salle album after Three Feet High and Rising, which is like weird because Three Feet High and Rising is the first one and this one's the fifth one. Um, there must be some sort of uh, publishing deal because this album isn't available on iTunes. It is only available on Spotify. So if you want to check it out, um, don't bother on Apple because they don't have the content on there. Um, great tracks on it, great features on it. Um, it I kind of feel like it's a dedication to De La Soul, this album. It's like an album where other artists are being able to go out there and say, you guys are brilliant. Um, and, 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 that, and you can see that in the features. The features have got Buster Rhymes, Chaka Khan, Redman, Freddie Fox features on it. Uh, Mike D and Ad Rock from the Beastie Boys. That's kind of like all those guys saying, look, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. And you've taken our music, Chaka Khan, and made it something special. Or the Beastie Boys saying, you've just, you made us realise that we can do whatever music we really wanted to do. We didn't have to follow the, the pattern of, of, of the hip-hop um, criteria. Uh, what do you think about um, this album? I think it is a fantastic album. Um, I am a little bit of a... Um, no, I, I know that Della Soul... Uh, I know that Della, and I use this term respectfully. Um, I know that Della Soul nerds. Um, I can't compete with Della Soul nerds. Like um, <laughs> they, they will battle me on every level. And so this is definitely one of my favourite Della Soul albums. Um, I mean, it, it, it's testament to how good Della Soul's catalogue is. That a little bit like, say, Gangstar and a tribe called Quest, you can get. 10 Della Soul fans in a room. I've just screwed at the math, maths, but you get Della Soul fans in a room and they will all put aside a compelling argument for why each different Della album is the best. Um, I think that this is another one of the albums that Mark Williams, I, I moved to London in January of the year 2000. So talking about a new beginning and excitement for me, 
um, most, if not all, the albums that, that you've talked about, there's one or two exceptions, but, but what ifs, um, most of the albums here are the soundtrack to my first year in London. And because of the way that you, you, you say albums had a, albums were a thing and albums had a long shelf life. I was still banging this day in, day out when the part two came out some, some time later. And I know exactly where I was when I heard Ooh. I know I was exactly where I was when I heard Shaka Khan. I knew exactly where I was when um, XFM, that was an indie rock radio station, but loved certain hip hop artists, you know, the crossover in a, in a good way, a good crossover folks, played the song with um, the, 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 the folks on the Beastie Boys. And like you say, Mark Williams, I think in football, you're a football fan and I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I think there's, there's a term like a testimonial where people come together and play in respect of this or that person. Not saying Della Soul were ready to quit, but this was, as you say, a beautiful moment of different people rallying around an iconic group who were far from over, but um, but, but just needed to, to smell the roses whilst they could. Moving on, next album would be Jedi Mind Tricks, Violent by Design. Another big album, especially in the hip-hop community. And then we're moving on to one that is one of mine and Lee's personal favourites, would be uh, Reflection Eternal, uh, Train of Thought. Great album with um, two iconic uh, artists that we both love passionately. Um, but the next album that I'm going to talk about actually would be the album with the most commercial success, at, mm, most critical success in the year. The next album I'm going to talk about would be the one with the most critical um, success in the year, which would be Santana Supernatural. Um, now, Santana was uh, and is. Uh, one of my favourite artists of all time. My dad was mad about him. Um, so I've been listening to his music from when I was born, um, especially those first two albums that came out in 69 and 70. Uh, but the story goes that he wanted to do another album because his last one didn't have great commercial success. He bumped into Clive, Clive Davis, who actually uh, did his first album and said, Clive, I want to do an album that, that is commercially viable. All these years I've made music for me. Maybe this time I should try and make music for the people. So Clive agreed, signed him, they did the deal, and this is what came out the other side of it. It's laced with tune after tune after tune after tune. Yeah. It was number one in 11 countries. Um, we What, last year or the year before, it was still being sampled, covered by DJ Khaled when he did the tune with Rihanna. Um, uh, you know, like, and it also, in some ways, it doesn't, growing up as a kid, um, I'll used to listen to things like Oye Komova or Samba Pati, which everybody knows from the Marks and Spencers Albert for the food and things like that. Um, and I don't think he, he, he vies, vies away from that too, too much. Um, there's the track um, Smooth with the guy from the band that I'd never heard of and I'd never heard of the guy before. But everybody yeah, knows. Matchbox 20, Rob Thomas. Rob Thomas. Yeah. actually went to go and see him perform it at uh, the London O2. Um, yeah, great, 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 great album. Um, he... As another interesting fact, um, other than Michael Jackson, uh, at that point, he was the uh, highest nominated for one album. So he had nine nominations for one album that year, uh, in the Grammys, that is. Um, so yeah, that's a must-have in your collection. It, it's, it's got pop tracks on it. It's got those hip-hop tracks, R&B-flavoured tracks with Maria Maria. But he's also got those real kind of Latin rock funk tracks, is what I'd like to call them, really. I mean, it's kind of hard to say what it is he's just an icon in himself so it's a must-have album so also in the year 2000 we had destiny's child writing on the wall i believe actually that was released in the us in 1999 um, got you paul weller's heliocentric the low postings the make and do queen of 
donate great stuff. We also had Stanley Dawn Boy at the hour, but we all the beast great album. Love it. And then we get into the, the era what I reckon is the um the pinnacle of Neo Soul the year yep. I've said that already by talking about uh, the Soul Variants, the Common Album, uh, and Voodoo. There's a few here albums here that we could talk about. There's Jill Scott, who is Jill Scott, um, Music Soul Child's I Just Wanna Sing, uh, and Erica Badu's Mama's Mama's Gun. Um, so let's start with um, Music Soul Child's I Just Wanna Sing. It was a debut album for him. Um, the hit track on it for me was Merry Go Round. Uh, I love that. I've, I mean, and I play it now all the time. Um, but I started with that one because um, Jill Scott features on that album as a writer. So we were aware of Jill Scott's talents and um, she'd already, already written tracks. Uh, I think she's got a, co- a co-write label on um, The Roots You Got Me with Erica Badu. Um, so I'd already heard of her prior to that. Um, and then we, so we then got Jill Scott's Who Is Jill Scott? which was um, a great album. I mean, it's it's up there with one of my favourite neo-soul albums of all time. Again, going through that kind of soulquarian route, she was discovered by Questlove. So the connection was there. She, she was always going to succeed from the support and the great talent that she had around her. And whether it was going to be a commercial success was irrelevant. It was always going to be a great piece of music. But when you're talking about neo-soul, the queen has to be Erica Badu. Uh, so I'll pass over to you to talk about Mama's Gun. And this, this, this listener, if, if you hear Mark kind of grinning a little bit and, and me chuckling, I wonder what's so funny. Um, I, I was definitely um, super influenced in various various ways, both both musically and and, and, and lifestyle, so to speak, by um, the music that I heard from people like um, the Roots and um, Yasin Bey, formerly known as Most Def, in 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 the mid to late nineties. Um, Erica Badu, D'Angelo, um, as Mark Williams has said, came with classic albums in the, the 90s. And I think it was safe to say people went, well, that's the best thing they're ever going to do. I don't know how they're going to top those amazing albums. And then would you believe it, in the year 2000, um, D'Angelo came out with an album that I would argue is the best album of all time, or at least my favorite album of all time. And what's another album that I go, oh, but what about... Um, when I'm having these little um, discussions with myself and other people. Another album is Erica Badu's sophomore album, Mama's Gun. Um, uh, this is a... It's a reverse compliment because I say, I'll say i say words like, I could speak about this album all day, so I won't speak for it for long. Um, I think that, again, production-wise, uh, music-wise, everyone involved... Again, another album where it was really um, a, a lot of different people coming together and bringing the best out of each other from you know people who are no longer with us like 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 james yancey um jay diller um to, to roy hargrove rest in peace to, to th- those people gone too soon to the um the, the quest loves of, of of the roots and so on and so forth um erica badu i think is um slept on as a producer and a beat maker in her own right and again i i kind of wonder if if that's like a, a, a gender thing I'm, I'm not sure but but again that's a conversation for another time but you will be hard pushed to find an album in any musical style that can be so diverse, but so cohesive, so languid and, and smooth and almost lazy in its, in, in its getting there and, and a jam kind of feel, but at the same time so tight and so focused. There are songs on here that can be so beautiful and uplifting and powerful, but there's, there's, there's some real sadness on, on, on here as well. Um, I will 
start to do that thing where if I say, listener, check out this song or that song, I will end up just listing every song because this is an album. There are some albums you put on in the background. There are some albums that you stream the one or two hits I make you on playlist to. Um, this is an album that, again, like Voodoo, like Supreme Clientele, like, like other albums we've mentioned, it is a piece of, think of it as cinema, because the meaning of music has changed in, in, in just Mark and my lifetime. Um, I think there are certain albums that, just the same way that you should sit and watch a film, um, nothing going on but the film in front of you to get immersed in, I think that Mama's Gun is one of those types of albums. Um, as someone who has green eyes, there's one of the most fantastic um playful and then goes into something else very much not playful um dedications to green eyes ever on this album um i could talk all day about erica badu i could talk all day about this album um but mark williams i'll pass over to you you just said that we see jill scott and especially um erica badu as songstress as artists more than we do writers or beat makers i think the verse yeah recently had due to covid where they battled each other was a good way to yeah actually these guys have got much more to offer than that very much like yeah. when we discussed the best 80s producer, none of us considered Prince because we all see Prince as a, as a singer yes. and not as a, a beat maker or a producer. Yeah, um, yeah. I think Erica falls into, into that bracket. Um, she, she, she became legendary for that first album, very much like D'Angelo did. Um, so it was, it was all against her on the second album, um, just like D'Angelo and, and they produce magic once again. Um, I also think that these people are very, very talented. That's undeniable. But they operated as a collective. So when you talk about these people yeah. making music, kind of, they're all kind of bouncing off each other. You know, it's not like they, they would make the music in the same studio. So, you know, you walk in there and you see, oh, well, the Roots are doing this and they're playing this and I like the sound of that, so I'm going to do this and, and so on and so forth. And, and I think that's important when you get a collective um, to, to work like that because it, it, it gives you new ideas, but it pushes you as well. Um, not that she needs taking outside of her comfort zone. I'm not sure that she even has a zone. She just does what she wants when she <laughs> yeah. wants to do it. But it, 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 it's, a, it's a fabulous album. But then anything that she does is just fabulous in my eyes. So uh, I won't Amen. talk too much about it. The next one on the list would be uh, Outcast Stanconia. Um the hip-hop duo from the South, who we all know and love. Uh, Lee, do you want to talk about that one? I, I Again, um, in, in my reverse psychology way, I could talk about this album all day. And because of that, I'll try and keep it to um, a couple of minutes. There is, If there is a... You will, you will see that we fall into certain topics and, and themes within the topics and themes of the show. So um, the, the topic theme today is the year 2000 in music. And the subtopics, so to speak, and themes that are coming out are um, collaborative efforts, people working together when it's for a common cause, and also artists that did not look to cross over to mainstream appeal. And instead, because they were so true to themselves, the mainstream crossed over to them. And I think that both of these different sub-themes are encapsulated on this record and by Outkast. You have got Outkast, of course, Andre and Big Boy, but you have a incredibly solid production team behind them in, in Organized Noise and, and Earth Tone 3. So you see Outkast, but you then have their, their, their crew of, of production and, and, and artists and, and singers and, and rappers and, and, and people. I mean, I, I think this is when the world got introduced to Killer Mike. And um, he said it himself, you know, one motherfucking verse and already, it's a classic. 
that's an awful Atlanta accent. I might chop that out. But, but you know, Kill, Kill, Killer Mike was on a album with Outkast, who were already legends. And shout out to Killer Mike because you could tell that they were they were his, his folks and so on because he he showed up to that as Mark always says with the Bernie Mac, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers, I ain't afraid of you motherfuckers. He just he just whipped it. Um, the album is amazing both sonically, um, production wise, and flows. I. <laughs> It's funny. I was on Twitter one day and I follow Killer Mike and he said, name some rappers who are underrated. So I um, mentioned A-Z. That's A-Z. And um, Killer Mike came back with a, that's a fantastic um, example of an MC that is underappreciated. And he said to him, to Killer Mike, A-Z is like a, a really good combination of J-Z and Nas and um, I, I, it, 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 as soon as he said it, I got what he meant. And it kind of made me think about other groups and artists, how it might be lazy to say, but how um, some artists are a combination of, 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 of other artists. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, people will go, oh, well, if they listen, if they sound a bit like them, I might as well listen to the original person or, or so on and so forth. But we talked recently about To Pimp a Butterfly on the um, the show and on my influenced to pimp a butterfly playlist i had um the track southern playlistic cadillac music southern playlistic cadillac funky music by outcast and um there were various reasons i thought it sat well with um, mark williams talking about snoop doggy dog's doggy style the um the year before because outcast themselves at the time some people were saying that 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 album um sounded very much like a down south the chronic but I digress. We're talking about Outcast in the year 2000. I think that the lyrical ability and the um, the meat and potatoes, shall we say, of um, Big Boy and the more, um, I want to say a word like poetic or more um, artsy, um, you know, side side of, thank you, so emotional of, 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 of Andre. I think that if you put both of those rappers together in a single rapper, you could argue that that rapper would be Kendrick Lamar. So, um, you know, there's there's a little um, influenced um, cross-reference there. But we're talking about Outkast and Kony right now. Um, I think that along with Kid A by Radiohead, this was a perfect example of artists in the year 2000 going, we're not looking for commercial appeal, and we're not looking to do like we did before, but without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, because this album is way more psychedelic, way more trap, um, before trap what was quote unquote a thing to the mainstream um there's there's music on here that heavy metal heads i know jumped around to and that rave kids that i knew jumped around to you know this this came out i think in in october november year 2000 so to hear them referring to um the first iraq war and there's there's, there's explosions and, and hand grenade references and all these types of stuff to think about um, and bombs over baghdad to think about the fact that they were chatting about um the first iraq war and the repercussions that that had on Americans and, and black Americans and so on and so forth. When, when you then fast forward to what happens the following year with September 11 and the second Iraq war, this is one of those albums where you kind of shift a little bit and go, gosh, this is, you know, this, this, this was incredibly prescient. Um, but of course, you've also got crossover tracks like um, Miss Jackson, um, which was a beer boy favorite um, in a way that's akin to Basement Jackson's Where Your Head At, Where's Your Head At? Where it could have damaged the um, the groups because it, you know they they caught a very commercial um, wave and sometimes that that can be the worst thing that happens to an already established band. Um, I could talk about this album all day. I think that when you look at the music and the music videos of people like Flying Lotus, um, with that black sci-fi psychedelica 
um, until the quiet comes by Flying Lotus. If you go and watch that video, and then you go and watch the video to Bombs Over Baghdad, um, you know, you, you check out these kind of similarities and, and so on and so forth, which of course go back to all types of music like Funkadelic back in the day and, and, and so on and so forth, but their, their evolution or, or, or revisiting um, artists from, from the past, but coming out with something that a lot of people hadn't heard before, at least in, you know, I don't know, man. They, 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 they. It, it's one of those albums again that if you like Pink Floyd, here's an Outcast song for you. If you like George Clinton and Funkadelic, here's an Outcast song for you. Um, if you like rave music, gospel music, if you like heavy metal and you're a headbanging dude, I saw headbanging dudes banging their heads to um, Outcast performing Bombs Over Baghdad live in about 2001. Um, heavy metal dudes, straight up bald heads, leather jacket, black studs on with, with motorcycle gang patches, all very peaceful folks. I don't mean ganging it in necessarily a negative way. And they were jumping up and down and screaming along with the hip hop kids, along with the rave kids, along with the, along with the neo soul kids. So, you know, Stankonia, fantastic album. Um, I'm trying to make some sort of really corny, it's a place you want to visit and you might want to stay kind of reference, but I, but I can't do it. Um, but yeah. I, th I think it highlights evolution. you got to think that when they did Southern Player Cadillac, Southern Playalistic Cadillac music in 1994, they were 19. So from yeah. the point of that to then Eight Aliens, to Aquemini, to Stankonia, it's a natural evolution. Yeah. And I think that by the time they yeah. get to Stankonia, is that they decided and they realised artistically and socially who they were. Um, and that comes out in the music yeah. because it's, it, it feels like, like you said there, a piece of art that we're going to make. And you like it, you like it, you don't like it, you don't like it. Yeah. And, 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 that, and I think that's the best way to be. And because from that point onwards, we knew what we were going to get. When we got Speaker Box, the next album, the next evolution of that was, well, do you know what? Let's do an album where you, you artistically influence this side and I'll artistically influence this side. And we'll come in yeah. the middle somewhere and we'll see where we, you know, so it was, it was yeah. a constant yeah. evolution of both of them. Um, and, and I think Stankonia might be the pinnacle of that because that's when they decided this is who we are. And, and, and even even more so because I since mean, then, Big Boy's only really done albums with organised noise. He's kind of gone full circle, isn't he? he? He did all those albums and then I think his latest album is just him and Sleepy Brown. Is it really? Because I've... Yeah, coming out in see, like two, I... three weeks. See, this is why, I mean, I, th I think the, um, the listeners probably heard me cringe a little bit when I said... Um, I referred to um, Big Boy as the meat and potatoes kind of kind kind of side, and I think you you heard me wince at the time because I kind of contradicted and painted myself into a corner because he goes full circle with organised noise. But you you know better than I do. He's on tracks with Little Dragon. He does stuff with these European dance acts, which aren't which aren't that David Guetta crossover vibe. It's really like he gets that type of. I mean, we're talking about a rapper who feels comfortable on um, MTV cribs to show both his collection of cars, um, maybe, um, you know, pole dancing poles in the studio. And he also goes over and shows um, his, his collection of Kate Bush records, where, you know, this, this is me, take me for what I am. So, you know, I should really watch, watch what I say sometimes, because I say meat and potatoes, and I'm immediately typecasting him. And, you know, you, you can't put outcast in a box, you know. It's one of the best... Um documentaries for visually seeing it is the organized noise documentary on netflix because they talk about how they never oh, nice. they never fell out they just kind of both sets organized noise and goody mob and uh, out. they just grew and you know then when you yeah. grow and you meet new people who example, yeah erica badu who introduces you to new things and gives you yeah. new expression you want to try it and just see where you go with it so yeah um, yeah it was never a falling out it was just a natural growth and, and like i said yeah. you definitely feel like that's part of the process 
in this album. I mean, I always felt like, um, and again, I, I, I shouldn't really ponder um, negative elements or, or things I infer as negative in, in, in music. I'm trying to keep it positive these days. Um, I always felt, however, that a big stumbling block in the damn near impeccable catalogue of A Tribe Called Quest, who are often brought up in conversations alongside people like De La Soul and Outkast, was that I think... When you listen to the A Tribe Called Quest album, The Love Movement, um, rest in peace to Jay Diller and rest in peace to Five Dog, I, I think that that is an album where you can hear that people need a bit of time away from one another. And what I am very happy about, is to, to, to flip it back to the positive side, is that I never got the impression on an Outcast record that they were thinking, this, this, this chap again, I have to deal with this guy's um, baggage, shall we say. It's just like you say, it seemed to be an evolution, and I'm a massive outcast fan, but I would rather not petition or get at um, them on Twitter like, when's the next album coming? Because, gentlemen, you've left us with enough stuff that will last many a lifetime, and um, best of luck to you both in, in your and organised noise in their continued and future endeavours. How, how can you not love them and, and be happy for them if they're happy for them? Massively, massively, 100%. Definitely, the year 2000 could possibly be, is definitely the best year of music in my lifetime. Um, if you could think of another one, we'd love to hear from you to dispute it. You can get to us at influencepodcast.co.uk. Uh, or you can hit us up on Instagram, which is Influenced Music Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us for the show. Lee, thank you very much for participating. Thank you. It's been a welcome trip down a, a musical memory lane. If we've missed out any albums, please get in touch and let us know. Um, next week, we will be doing a little bit more of a light-hearted show. We're going to be talking about our guilty pleasures. Lee, will be back for that one? I wouldn't miss it for the world. Uh, Mark, Mark Anthony would also be joining us as one of my co-hosts. Uh, in the meantime... Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy this episode uh, and we look forward to talking to you all again soon. Take care. Influence Music Podcast. We explore the new music and making connections back to previous musical generations via panel debates, uh, conversations and interviews with artists, enthusiasts and media insiders. 